0: Lecture 8, Controversies in Explicit Learning Research. Welcome back. In this lecture, I want to discuss a few controversies in the field of human learning and memory. These are topics for which there seems to be a disconnect between what the general public believes to be proven fact and what science has actually demonstrated. And in each case, I'll briefly summarize some of the claims that many people in the public believe, and then I'll review the actual scientific evidence for those claims. And by the end of the lecture, you should be in a much better position to evaluate the validity of claims that you run across in the popular press. Let's begin by talking about the idea of learning styles. Are some students visual learners? Are others auditory learners? Are still others kinesthetic learners, learning best by moving and interacting with real physical objects? Are some students left-brained, while other students are right-brained? Do some students learn best by collaborating with others, while others learn best on their own? In short... Do different people have different styles of learning? And if so, should teachers tailor their instruction to the specific learning style of individual students? This idea sometimes goes under the name of individualized instruction. It certainly seems like a reasonable idea. After all, people are quite different in every way you can think of. Some people are more artistic than others. Others are more musical. Some people like math. Others hate it. Some people would rather read a book than watch a movie. Others prefer movies. So it makes sense to think that people probably also learn in different ways. And if so, then tailoring instruction to match someone's learning style could have real benefits. And consistent with that intuition, The idea of learning styles has had an enormous impact in education and in society more generally. Testing to determine learning styles has been recommended by several education organizations, and a number of textbooks in educational psychology discuss the merits of the approach. An organization called the International Learning Style Network which is dedicated to one particular learning style model, now has 23 centers around the world, including 11 in the United States. They also market and sell a number of tools designed to assess different aspects of a student's learning style. And they offer summer certification training for educators interested in applying the approach. Likewise, an organization called the Hay Group sells another very popular assessment tool called the Kolb Learning Style Inventory, which is designed to determine whether someone learns by experiencing, by reflecting, by thinking, or by acting. It attempts to distinguish among nine different learning styles. So the idea of learning styles has received a lot of attention in education circles. And it has also led to commercial products and training programs that generate significant revenue. But does tailoring instruction to match learning styles actually work? Is there solid scientific evidence to support that claim? Well, personally, I would say that the answer is not yet. It's possible that future research will demonstrate the value of assessing learning styles and designing individualized instruction, but the evidence to date has a number of problems. First of all, there's not a lot of theoretical agreement in the field about how learning styles should be categorized. In particular, a lot of different learning style models have been proposed. For example... Frank Caulfield at the University of London, along with his colleagues David Mosley, Elaine Hall, and Kathleen Ecclestone, performed a systematic review of the scientific literature on learning styles, and they identified 71 different models. Of these, they conducted an in-depth analysis of 13 models that they considered to be the most influential. Unfortunately, This analysis revealed very little convergence across the models. Virtually all the models classified learners in idiosyncratic ways. Convergers versus divergers, verbalizers versus imagers, holists versus serialists, deep learners versus surface learners, activists versus reflectors, left-brainers versus right-brainers, and so on. You get the idea. So what's the right way to categorize learners? what we really don't know, and the field doesn't seem to be making progress toward an agreed-upon conceptual framework. Caulfield and his colleagues put it this way, research into learning styles can, in the main, be characterized as small-scale, non-cumulative, uncritical, and inward-looking. A second concern is that a lot of the work in the field is based on what students report that they like, rather than being based on what actually improves their learning. Most of the tests that have been designed to assess learning styles ask students to indicate their preferred way to perform different tasks. And based on those preferences, the student gets categorized into a particular learning style. But if you think about it, the critical issue isn't how much a student likes a particular approach, but rather how much they learn using that approach. I mean, I might prefer watching a movie about the Civil War, compared with reading a systematically researched book on the topic, but presumably I'd learn a lot more by reading the book. Likewise, learning methods that are actually the most effective might not be what students most prefer. For example, in the previous lecture, we pointed out that taking tests is actually one of the very best ways to learn. But I'd be surprised if there are a lot of students out there who would get classified as test-takers based on their self-reported preferences. A third concern is perhaps the most serious. There's very little solid evidence supporting the claim that tailoring instruction to match student learning styles has a significant positive impact. For example, John Hattie at the University of Melbourne reviewed hundreds of studies in an attempt to identify the factors that most influenced learning. And the effect of individualized instruction was very small. So small, in fact, that it's probably not a good use of teacher's time. Furthermore, very few of the studies that have claimed evidence for learning styles have actually provided a rigorous test of the idea. In 2008, the Association for Psychological Science charged four leading researchers on learning with the task of evaluating the evidence for considering learning styles in education. The group was led by Hal Pashler at the University of California, San Diego, and it included Mark McDaniel, Doug Rohrer, and Bob Bjork. Now, these scientists decided to start by agreeing on what characteristics a study would need to satisfy in order to constitute compelling scientific evidence for the use of learning styles. And they came up with three simple criteria. First, the study should divide students into different groups based on their learning style. And students in the different groups should then be randomly assigned to receive different types of instruction about the same topic. For example, a bunch of algebra students might first be categorized as visual learners or verbal learners, based on one of the popular learning style assessment tools. And then, some of them might be randomly assigned to receive verbal instruction on what the slope of a line means, while others might be randomly assigned to receive more visual, graph-based instruction on the same topic. The important point is that some students would be receiving instruction that matches their learning style, while other students would be receiving instruction that doesn't match their learning style. Second, after all the students have received their form of instruction, the study should require all the students to take exactly the same test. Finally, the study should demonstrate that students with one learning style do better on the test after one type of instruction, while students with a different learning style do better after a different type of instruction. For example, if the visual learners do better on the test after visual instruction, but the verbal learners do better after verbal instruction, then that would constitute clear evidence that tailoring instruction based on learning style can be beneficial. Okay, so armed with these three simple criteria, Dr. Paschler and his colleagues went looking for studies in the scientific literature that satisfied them. And what do you think they found? None. They didn't find a single study that satisfied all three of these criteria. Now, they found plenty of studies showing that one type of instruction produced better results than another type, but it tended to be better for all the students. They didn't find any studies in which instruction type A was better for learning style A, but instruction type B was better for learning style B. In fact, They actually had a hard time finding studies that had randomly assigned students with different learning styles to different types of instruction. But in the small number of such studies that they did find, matching the type of instruction to the student never helped. The bottom line is that there currently isn't adequate justification for incorporating learning style assessments into education. Although such assessments are very popular, and have led to a profitable cottage industry, the science to date doesn't justify the large amounts of time, energy, and money currently being devoted to their use. Now, let's turn to a second controversial topic in the study of learning. Specifically, the so-called Mozart effect. Does listening to Mozart make you smarter? Does exposing children to the music of Mozart and other classical composers help them do better in school? Should parents of preschoolers play classical music at home to help their children become better learners? Should pregnant mothers play Mozart to their unborn babies to stimulate their brains? Well, many people think that the answer to all these questions is yes. A quick web search of Mozart effect music CDs will demonstrate the huge demand for these kinds of products. Many popular books tout the benefits of listening to classical music, not only to improve cognitive function, but also to reduce stress and to heal the body. Entire companies have sprung up marketing and selling products based on the assumed benefits of listening to classical music like Mozart. For example, in 1997, a musician and former music critic named Don Campbell published a popular book titled The Mozart Effect, which argued that music, particularly classical music like the music of Mozart, had the power not only to strengthen the mind, but also to heal the body and unlock a person's creative spirit. And based on the book's success, Campbell started an online business selling CDs like Music for the Mozart Effect, which were intended to enhance children's creativity and success in school, and even to help treat dyslexia, autism, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And these CDs were among the best-selling classical CDs for more than three years, according to the Billboard Classical Music Chart. Now, inspired by claims about the Mozart effect, former Georgia governor Zell Miller went so far as to budget over $100,000 per year to provide new parents in his state with recordings of classical music that they could play for their newborns. He was quoted as saying, no one questions that listening to music at a very early age affects the spatial, temporal reasoning that underlies math and engineering, and even chess, Having that infant listening to soothing music helps those trillions of brain connections to develop. Well, actually, quite a few scientists have questioned those claims. And so I'd like to spend a few minutes separating the science behind the Mozart effect from the popular hype. Now, interest in the Mozart effect was triggered in large part by a very influential study that was published as a one-page article in the journal Nature in 1993. The study was conducted by Dr. Francis Rauscher, Gordon Shaw, and Catherine Kai when they were at the University of California, Irvine. The design was very simple. 36 college students either listened to 10 minutes of a composition by Mozart or to 10 minutes of relaxation instruction or to 10 minutes of silence. The musical piece was Mozart's Sonata for Two Pianos in D major. Now, immediately after the 10 minute listening period, the students completed one of three abstract reasoning tasks from a famous IQ test called the Stanford-Binet Intelligence Scale. And the students did significantly better on the tasks after listening to Mozart than they did after listening to silence or to relaxation instructions. The authors also calculated an IQ equivalent score based on task performance. And that score was about eight to nine IQ points higher after listening to Mozart compared to other conditions. And this is the finding that has since been dubbed the Mozart effect although it's worth pointing out that the scientists who conducted the study never used that term in the original paper. The same authors published another study two years later in which they compared listening to Mozart with listening to the minimalist composer Philip Glass. And once again, they found that performance on a task from the Stanford-Binet IQ test was better after listening to Mozart. And Bruce Rideout at Ursinus er sinus College also published three replications in which listening to a Mozart composition led to improved performance on a task modeled after the task that Rauscher and colleagues had used. I think it's easy to see why the popular press latched on to these findings. They seem to suggest that the simple act of listening to 10 minutes of Mozart can increase your IQ by almost 10 points. Amazing, right? Well, yes and no. It's certainly an interesting finding, but there are two important limitations that often get glossed over. First, the tasks on which performance improved came from a single subtest of the Stanford-Binet test, specifically the spatial subtest. In fact, the effect was mainly evident on a single paper-folding task, in which people had to imagine folding a piece of paper multiple times, making a cut, and then unfolding the paper. They then had to predict what the unfolded paper would look like. So what the studies really showed is that listening to Mozart makes you better at a pretty specific kind of spatial processing. It definitely doesn't show that Mozart makes you smarter in general. Unfortunately, that distinction often gets lost in the popular press. Second, and more importantly, the effects were very short-lived. Specifically, the benefits of listening to the Mozart composition only lasted about 10 to 15 minutes. After that, the spike in spatial processing performance disappeared. Now, obviously, it would be great to find an intervention that produces a long-lasting improvement in cognitive performance. Unfortunately, listening to Mozart for a few minutes ain't that intervention. So an accurate summary of the results would therefore be that spending 10 minutes listening to Mozart's Sonata for two pianos in D major made students better at a specific spatial processing task for the next 10 minutes or so. Now, that's obviously fairly different than the claim that listening to Mozart makes people smarter. But it's still interesting in its own right. For example, if it were true, then architects might consider listening to Mozart before designing a building. And sculptors might benefit from listening to Mozart before working on a new piece. Even physicians conducting surgeries that require complex spatial processing Might benefit from a pre surgical music session. And because of its potential importance, many scientists followed up on the original study in an effort to understand it and extend it. Unfortunately, many of them failed to find the same kinds of effects. In particular, four studies published between 1994 and 1997 performed variants of the original Mozart effect experiments, but they failed to find significant effects. Now, one possible reason is that these studies didn't use exactly the same spatial processing tasks that the original studies had used. However, Kenneth Steele and his colleagues at Appalachian State University took great care to replicate one of the original studies and they actually recruited a lot more participants in order to increase the power and sensitivity of the study. But they still didn't observe a significant effect. Now scientists don't yet know for sure why some studies have found the effect while others haven't. But I think it's fair to say that the effect isn't particularly strong or robust. Furthermore. Even if the effect were demonstrated to be real, scientists all agree that it is short-lived and it's restricted to specific tests of spatial processing. Listening to Mozart for 10 minutes does not make you smarter, despite what you may read in the popular press and on websites. Okay, now I'd like to turn to a third controversy in the field of learning and memory. And that's the issue of whether traumatic memories can be repressed and later recovered. And I'd like to begin with the story of Eileen Franklin Lipsker, her father George Franklin, and her childhood friend Susan Nason. On September 22, 1969, eight-year-old Susan Nason went missing from her home in Foster City, California, near San Francisco. Ten weeks later, her remains were found on an embankment near California Highway 92, about 20 minutes west of her home. Her skull had been crushed, and the murder remained unsolved for 20 years. But in 1989, her childhood friend Eileen Franklin claimed to have recovered a memory of Susan's murder. And according to Eileen, the murderer was Eileen's own father, George Franklin. Well, at the urging of her husband, Eileen told her story to the police, and many of the details that she remembered checked out. And so George Franklin was charged with first-degree murder. And despite the lack of any physical evidence, he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison, based almost entirely on his daughter's testimony about her repressed, but subsequently recovered, memory. So, is it really possible to repress a memory of a traumatic event and then recover it decades later? That idea resonates with many people. The basic idea is that memory repression is a kind of psychological defense mechanism. So experiencing an extremely traumatic event like being raped or witnessing a murder leads the mind to bury that memory as a coping mechanism. Then later, perhaps when the victim is no longer in a threatening environment, the repressed memory might bubble to the surface when an appropriate cue serves as a reminder. Now, a key controversy in the field is whether such recovered memories are authentic. That is, are they true? Are they actually, or are they actually false memories? Now, note that claiming that a recovered memory is false doesn't imply that the person is lying. They may adamantly believe that the memory is true, even if it isn't. Now, let's begin with some of the reasons to believe that many recovered memories might be authentic. First and foremost, there are a lot of people out there who, like Eileen Franklin, claim to have recovered traumatic memories for events that had previously been forgotten. And the vast majority seem very genuine and might actually be events that they prefer not to remember. Furthermore, many people who experienced traumatic events as children do claim that they don't remember them. For example, Linda Williams at the University of New Hampshire interviewed over 100 women who had experienced some kind of sexual abuse as children, and these were documented by hospital records. Now, more than a third of them did not report any memories of the incident that necessitated the hospital visit. Now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe they did remember, but they just didn't want to talk about it. I mean, after all, doing so could be really painful, so it makes sense that they might prefer to avoid the topic. But it turns out that many of these same women did report other very personal and potentially painful information about their lives, including details about their sexual activity, about abortions, about drug use, and illegal behavior. In fact, some of these women who failed to report any memory of the incident that led to the hospital visit reported other incidents of sexual abuse from their childhood. And if they're willing to report one experience of sexual abuse, why would they be unwilling to report another? On the other hand, there are also reasons to doubt the authenticity of at least some recovered memories. For one thing, a number of studies have shown that people tend to remember emotionally arousing information better than emotionally neutral information. For example, a number of laboratory studies have shown people pictures that were either emotionally neutral or that were very emotionally charged, like pictures of murdered children. And if people are brought back weeks later, they inevitably remember the emotionally charged pictures much better than the neutral pictures. And if forgetting is a kind of psychological defense mechanism, you might expect to find the opposite pattern. Of course, you might argue that however horrific the pictures are, there's still nothing like the experience of being raped or witnessing a murder. And so perhaps pictures aren't sufficient to trigger the defense mechanism of repression. But what about soldiers who have witnessed extremely traumatic events during warfare? including watching friends die or being seriously injured themselves. Wouldn't one predict substantial cases of memory repression among those soldiers? In fact, many combat veterans want to forget what they witnessed, but they're tormented by extremely vivid memories of the horrors that they experienced. And again, if forgetting is a psychological defense mechanism, then you might expect the opposite. There have also been a number of cases of recovered memories that have been demonstrated to be false. In one case, a woman recovered memories of having been sexually abused as a child in the attic of her childhood home. But subsequent investigation found that her house didn't actually have an attic. Another woman remembered being abused by her father at home at the age of two. But in fact, she was being raised in prison by her mother, who was serving a sentence at the time. And so the girl actually had no contact with the father. The bottom line is that there's evidence on both sides of this very controversial issue. Some experts believe the vast majority of recovered memories are authentic and mostly accurate, while others believe that most, if not all, such memories are confabulations. Personally, I suspect the truth is somewhere in the middle. As we've learned in this course, memory is both fallible and malleable, so it seems not only plausible, but highly likely that some recovered memories are not accurate, even if the person has no doubt about their authenticity. That said, memory repression after a traumatic event is quite commonly reported. And I don't think the evidence to date warrants immediately dismissing all recovered memories as fiction. So, what about Eileen Franklin and her recovered memory of her father George raping and killing her childhood friend? As we discussed, that memory led to his conviction and subsequent incarceration. Well, it turns out that the conviction was overturned in 1995, based on some errors in the original trial. And the prosecutor decided not to pursue a retrial because subsequent revelations raised questions about Eileen's reliability as a witness. For example, she claimed to have recovered memories of other murders committed by her father. But in at least one of those cases, DNA evidence exonerated him. Of course, that doesn't mean he didn't kill Eileen's childhood friend Susan Nason. And to this day, her family and the police are convinced that he did. Okay, this lecture finishes our tour of explicit memory. We've learned about the psychology of explicit memory, including dissociations between explicit and implicit memory and amnesia, about the nature of episodic memory, and about the nature of semantic memory. We've also discussed the neuroscience of explicit memory, including the differential roles of the hippocampus and neocortex and the mechanisms underlying memory consolidation. Finally, we learned about real-world issues related to explicit learning, including what study techniques are most effective for learning. And in this lecture, we learned about some real-world controversies in the field. But there's more to memory than just explicit conscious learning and memory. There's an entire world of implicit learning and memory processes that we use every day, but that we're not consciously aware of. And in the next few lectures, we're going to dive into that world of unconscious learning and try to discover some of its fascinating secrets.